This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The year was 1990. Carol A. Light was terrified. The security alarms at their South Jersey home blared while the family Rottweilers barked ferociously. Worse yet, she swore she could see armed men hiding in the woods from the window. She called her husband John in a panic. 28-year-old John A. Light, the right-hand man of John Gotti Jr., was away from the house when he received the call. Without so much as a second thought, he ditched his friends and hopped into his Corvette. As A. Light raced home, he wondered which of his many enemies could be after him that night. The most likely seemed Tommy Karate Patera. Earlier that year, Karate had killed one of A-Light's friends over a $20,000 dispute. Rumor around town was that A-Light was next on his list. When A-Light got home, he snuck in from the back and grabbed a revolver and an Uzi submachine gun. He slipped into the dark woods and lurked toward the men waiting to ambush him. Instead, A-Light took them by surprise, unloading the Uzi like an 80s action star. And after a brief firefight, the attackers fled. It was too dark to see that night. But the next morning, A-Light checked the woods to see if anyone had been killed. Though he didn't find any bodies, he did see plenty of blood. He knew a message had been sent. A few days later, A-Light's boss, John Gotti, called A-Light to a sit-down with Tommy Karate. Gotti declared that their feud was over. No more fighting. When the meeting finished and the two men headed toward their cars, A-Light turned and said to Tommy, Nothing's settled. I'm still gonna kill ya.
Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alistair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our first episode on John A. Light, an enforcer for the Gambino crime family in the 1980s and 90s. As the right-hand man of John Gotti Jr., A. Light not only made hundreds of thousands selling cocaine, but acted as the Gambino family's muscle. This week, we'll dive into A. Light's rise as a member of Gotti Jr.'s crew. And next week, we'll explore the bitter divide between the two former friends. Please note, this episode is based primarily on accusations and testimony by John A. Light. Much of it cannot be independently verified. John Gotti Jr. has denied the accusations A. Light has made against him. The red flags had been there from the earliest days, but John A. Light had ignored them. He was drawn toward Junior, like light pulled toward a black hole. It would take years before the full extent of the Gotti's hypocrisy and incompetence became apparent. A. Light couldn't have known it when they first met, but he and Junior were as fated to be together as Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. The first job he pulled with Junior should have scared him away, but as a 21-year-old in 1983, he was as dumb as every other kid on the block. So he agreed to help Junior out of a jam. One of Junior's crew, Johnny Gebert, had been beaten and robbed by a gang of Jamaican drug dealers. By attacking Gebert, they had disrespected Junior and, by extension, John Gotti himself. Junior decided the best plan for revenge was a drive-by shooting. The plan was simple. There would be two cars. A-Light would drive Gebert in the shooting car. Meanwhile, Junior and a guy named Jerry would follow in the blocking car. Their job was to hold up traffic if and when the cops showed up. It did not get off to an auspicious start. Gebert showed up high on angel dust. A-Light knew he should have backed out then and there. But Junior gave Gebert a 38 caliber pistol and told them the job was on. The men drove out to the Richmond Hill neighborhood in Queens, passing the storefront where the Jamaicans hung out. They circled back around and A-Light slowed down to let Gebert get to work. Gebert leaned out the window and fired several shots, scattering the crowd but hitting no one. Almost instantly, A-Light heard police sirens and slammed down on the accelerator. The plan had been to make a left on Atlantic Avenue. 
but as A-Light turned on Atlantic, he watched from the rearview mirror as Junior kept driving on down Jamaica Avenue, abandoning him. When A-Light slowed at a stop sign, Gebert leapt out of the car and fled, leaving the gun behind. A-Light couldn't believe it. Everyone had jumped ship, and now he was stuck with the 38. A-Light managed to keep his cool, though deep down he wanted to kill Gebert. Instead, he drove a couple more blocks, turned down a narrow street, and stopped the car. Slipping away quietly, he tossed the gun in a trash can, popped into a convenience store to buy a soda, and then jogged back to the clubhouse. When he got to the clubhouse, A-Light saw that Gebert was AWOL. So he confronted Junior, demanding to know what the hell happened back there. Junior claimed that Jerry panicked when he heard the cops and took off. But A-Light knew Junior was lying. Junior was never the kind of person to admit he'd made a mistake. Even if it was true, A-Light felt Junior was still at fault. He's the one who brought on a panicky, PCP-smoking coward. A-Light should have known better than to get mixed up with chumps like these. Yet, in a pattern that would repeat itself over and over again in the years to come, A-Light chose to ignore Junior's glaring flaws. The rewards for associating with Agati were too beguiling. Money and gangster glamour. John Alight had grown up in the Woodhaven neighborhood of Queens, New York. He and his friends called the neighborhood Death Haven because so many people they knew from there ended up dead. Alight was third-generation Albanian. His mother was a secretary and his father was a cab driver and gambler. They were not particularly well off. Young Alight had to keep his sneakers held together with duct tape, but they knew how to survive. A-Light's father was obsessed with sports, and he pressed baseball and boxing on A-Light and his brothers. No matter how hard his father pushed him, A-Light never resented him or the training. He embraced athletics with gusto and eventually dreamt of playing baseball professionally. The elder A-Light taught his son to never give up or back down. When, as a child, A-Light told his dad that an older kid had flicked a cigarette butt at him, his father told him to go back and punch the kid in the face. A-Light did just that, only to get beaten to a pulp. His father, though, was proud of him. He had stood up for himself. He didn't let someone walk all over him. Growing up in Queens, A-Light was surrounded by mobsters. He had a cousin who ran a card game with Gambino Associates. A-Light's father sometimes played at this game and took his boys along with him. And whenever the wise guys got to winning, they would slip young A-Light a few bills. He sensed that these were important, powerful men. And even as a teenager, the combination of money and power was intoxicating. While he was in high school, A-Light worked at a deli across the street from a mob clubhouse. There, he started doing odd jobs for wise guys. Soon, he was moving a little marijuana and cocaine. But being a full-time associate of the mob was never part of the plan. It was purely a way to make some extra cash. His dream was still to play professional baseball. 
In high school, Alight was a star pitcher, playing varsity all four years and earning a scholarship to the University of Tampa. But he pushed himself too hard, and at the end of his first semester, he needed surgery to replace the ligament in his elbow. Even after weeks of physical therapy, it was clear he would never play ball again. With his baseball dreams dashed, A-Light dropped out of college and started working on his backup plan, organized crime. 20-year-old John A-Light returned to Queens in the summer of 1983 and dealt drugs to make money. During this time, he occasionally did business with members of John Gotti Jr.'s crew. And before too long, Jr. decided it was time to bring another good earner into his crew. Ironically, their first major deal together had nothing to do with drugs. It involved settling a beef. Their first job together was the drive-by on the Jamaican drug dealers. Despite the fiasco, A-Light had proven he could stay cool under pressure. He was reliable, which was becoming an increasingly difficult trait to find in young wise guys. Junior knew that a guy like A-Light was good for business. And for A-Light, Junior was his meal ticket. Sure, he may be a screw-up, but he had connections. Through Junior, A-Light could tap into fast, easy money. He would be working for one of New York's five families. It was the major leagues. In the weeks that followed, A-Light proved he was a capable earner in Junior's crew. And, just as important, he proved that he wasn't afraid of anyone. Word of A-Light's competence got back to John Gotti Sr., a capo in the Gambino family at the time. Gotti called the young Albanian-American in for a meeting. A-Light quickly impressed the elder Gotti. Most of Junior's cronies were schmucks like Gebert, wannabes and losers who couldn't get their heads out of their asses long enough to pull off a decent score. But Gotti could tell A-Light was different. There was something about him. Soon, A-Light was allowed into the inner sanctum. Eventually, A-Light realized that his job was to act as Junior's babysitter, making sure the little prince stayed out of harm's way. It might have been a chore, but it put A-Light in a position he never would have expected to find himself in. Since A-Light was an Albanian, he could never become a made man, an official member of the mob. Still, he had his foot in the door. He was running with the Gotti family. He was making money selling drugs and enough to impress his superiors. And he was getting respect. And as A-Light continued to hang around the Gottis, he soon earned a reputation not just as a good worker, but as someone not to mess with. One night in 1984, A-Light and a girlfriend, Monique, drove to a white castle in Queens. By pure coincidence, Junior and the guys happened to show up minutes later. A-Light stayed in the car to chat with them while Monique went inside to get some burgers. While A-Light was chatting with Junior, he noticed a group of guys hassling Monique in the restaurant. Seconds later, one of them dropped his pants in front of Monique. A-Light calmly walked into the White Castle and punched the flasher in the face. Within seconds, a brawl broke out, with Junior and the boys joining in to help. In the chaos, 
A-Light was hit over the head with a beer bottle and stabbed in the face with an ice pick. When they heard sirens, everybody ran. A-Light and Monique got back into his car and drove off. While she was trying to convince him to go to a hospital, three of the harassers caught up to them in a pickup truck. They forced A-Light off the road and into a tree, pinning him and Monique inside their car. Grabbing a baseball bat, the three men went to town on A-Light's windshield. Junior and his crew pulled up in time to save A-Light, chasing off the harassers. But before one of them could get away, the bloody and battered A-Light managed to snatch the attacker and beat him with his own baseball bat. Then, A-Light passed out cold. He awoke at Queen's Hospital Center with a broken arm, a severely damaged pancreas, and over a hundred stitches. He spent two weeks in intensive care. Junior had basically saved A-Light's life. A-Light must have felt indebted to him. Their bond of brotherhood was forged in the crucible of violence. It would soon be consecrated with the blood of murdered men. Up next, John A-Light starts killing for the Gotties. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now back to the story. In the mid-1980s, John A. Light had fallen in as a member of John Gotti Jr.'s crew. As A. Light's star was on the rise, so were the Gottis. They were about to become one of the most powerful mob families in the country. It was a time of transformation for the American mob. A new generation was coming up. Italian-Americans had integrated into mainstream society. No longer barred from traditional avenues of prestige and wealth, the best and brightest were becoming successful, law-abiding citizens. The Mafia was an avenue only attractive to the foolish and greedy. Gotti and his son were emblematic of the new Mafia, and no single event better symbolized the new generation's recklessness than Gotti Sr.'s infamous takeover of the Gambino crime family. In December 1985, Gambino boss Paul Castellano was on his way to a meeting at Spark Steakhouse in Manhattan. As Castellano and his bodyguard stepped out of their Lincoln town car, four gunmen wearing white trench coats and thick winter hats shot them both to death. Half a block away, 
John Gotti and Sammy the Bull Gravano sat in a car and watched their boss being gunned down. And it was all because Castellano was against dealing drugs. Technically, a hit on a sitting boss had to be approved by the commission, the ruling body of the mob made up of the leaders of the five families of New York. Gotti did not seek their approval. He killed his boss on his own initiative and then took over as head of the Gambino family. It was a sign of the state of the mob that not only was Gotti able to kill his boss, but he got away with it. Shockingly, the other families accepted the hit. After the Spark Steakhouse coup, Gotti consolidated his power. After naming Sammy the Bull as underboss, he went about promoting those who helped carry out the hit. A few months later, 23-year-old John Alight was sent to inform the family's conciliary, Joe Gallo, that he had to retire. Gallo, then in his early 70s, had been with the family for decades and had even helped ensure Gotti was officially elected boss after Castellano was killed. But now, Gotti didn't need him anymore. Sending Alight, who wasn't even a made man, to deliver the news was a deeply disrespectful move. Nevertheless, Gallo took it on the chin and quietly stepped down. As the fortunes of the Gottis rose, so it was with Alight. He and Junior cornered the cocaine market in several Queens neighborhoods, moving up to eight kilos a week. Alight was supposed to fork over half of everything he made to Junior. Sometimes, though, he lied. If he made 100,000 one month, he might tell Junior it had been 80,000 and give him 40. Greed was fundamental to the lifestyle. No one was immune. Plus, Alight figured Junior was too stupid to catch on. Holding out from his boss was grounds for execution. But Alight knew he was smarter than Junior. The little Gotti wasn't the smooth, calculating gangster of yesteryear. For Junior, the image was everything. Though he wanted respect, he didn't understand how to earn it. He was deeply insecure, prone to overreaction at the smallest of slights. One time, Junior thought he had heard someone he knew, a guy named Gene Foster, trying to flirt with his girlfriend. In reality, Gene was flirting with the girlfriend's sister, but by then, Junior didn't care. He ordered Alight to throw the guy a beating. Alight hesitated to beat up someone who had done nothing wrong. Sure, Alight was violent and nasty, but he was usually rational. Not so much with Junior. So when Alight balked at beating up Gene, Junior went to his dad and complained. Gotti Sr. ordered Alight to get on with it. Alight found Gene Foster at Rockaway Beach and brained him with a metal pipe. He cracked Gene's ribs and punctured a lung. When a crowd tried to stop him, Alight pulled a gun out of his jockstrap and told them to back off. When Junior heard about it, he was pleased. Junior liked having the power to order beatings and murders. Never mind if it was stupid from a business standpoint or even just pointless. Perhaps that was part of the allure. It was unrestrained power, and it was intoxicating. 
As the 1980s wore on, their relationship became parasitic. A-Light did Junior's dirty work because he was making money hand over fist, upwards of $100,000 a month. But the cost, of course, was that A-Light's job was mainly to get Junior whatever he wanted, like a butler for a spoiled child. Besides the cocaine, he and Junior ran a lucrative sports booking operation. One of their regular customers was the equipment manager of the New York Mets, who often placed bets on behalf of pro players. But that kind of success was dangerous. It encouraged jealousy. Some saw what Alide had and wanted to take it for themselves by force. One afternoon in 1988, 25-year-old Alight was strolling along Jamaica Avenue when a Lincoln sidled up behind him. Alight turned in time to watch the car jump the curb. One of his own friends and associates, Johnny Gebert, leaped out of the car with a pistol in his hand and fired. Luckily, Alight was able to escape unscathed. Though both guys kicked up to Junior, by 1988, they saw each other as competitors in the drug trade. Gebert was reckless enough to think killing Alight on the street was a good idea. The sudden attempt on his life came out of nowhere for Alight. He was never entirely certain why Gebert decided to try to kill him. At the time, he was more concerned with staying alive and getting revenge. A-Light fled to his apartment, retrieving his own gun. But he needed Junior's permission to kill Gebert. Junior, however, wanted to talk to Gebert first. So he had A-Light wait in his car while Junior went into Gebert's apartment. When Junior returned a few minutes later, he told A-Light that it was all taken care of, that Gebert wouldn't come at him again. A-Light was furious. He wanted vengeance, an eye for an eye. But Junior insisted that they wait and lull Gebert into a false sense of security. A-Light suspected the real reason for Junior's hesitation was that he didn't want to lose out on the money Gebert kicked up to him. A-Light was livid, but it was Junior's M.O., loyalty to the dollar over his guise. Junior flexed his power over Alight by making him kill Gebert's brother-in-law, Georgie Grosso, instead. Grosso's crime was having a big mouth. For too long, he'd been letting people know that he was in the drug business with Junior. Advertising this all over town was a no-no. Grosso had to go. For a few days, Alight tailed Grosso, memorizing his routine. He noticed that almost every night, Grosso finished the day at the White Horse Tavern on Jamaica Avenue. So that's where Alight would make his move. A week before Christmas, 1988, Georgie Grosso entered the White Horse for a nightcap where Alight and some guys were waiting. Alight called him over and bought him drinks. While Grosso downed shots of vodka, a-Light secretly threw back water. Once Grosso was drunk and relaxed, A-Light proposed going to an after-hours club by LaGuardia Airport. Grosso wanted to go home, but A-Light convinced him to tag along. 
Grosso rode shotgun while Alight sat behind him. As the car turned off the main road, Alight shot Grosso in the back of the head three times. After dumping Grosso's body in some brush, Alight and his crew headed to a diner in Queens. The only way to wash down murder was with a cheeseburger and Coke. The next morning, Alight met Junior and told him it was done. Pleased, Junior took Alight to a salon across the way and bought them a manicure. The boys like to look nice. For now, Alight and Junior remained dedicated to each other. But Junior's refusal to allow Alight his revenge had sown the seeds of discontent. And before too long, those seeds would bloom into a seething hatred that threatened to destroy them both. Up next, the rift between Alight and Junior widens. Now back to the story. By the late 1980s, 26-year-old John Alight's standing in the Gambino crime family was on the rise. And he had done it all by being part of John Gotti Jr.'s crew. Though Alight and Jr. were making good money from the drug business, they never let an opportunity to make more slip by, no matter how it was done. One instance was Alight's robbery of mob associate Paul Silvers. Silvers and Jr. had been childhood friends, but by the late 1980s, Silvers was dealing drugs with the Lucchese family. He was making a lot of money, and Jr. wanted it. So he sent Alight to rob him. Alight came to Silvers' apartment on Queens Boulevard, ostensibly for a drug deal. Instead of cash, Alight pulled out a gun. When Silvers realized what was going on, he pathetically said, Come on, John. Alight took a few thousand dollars, a kilo of coke, and told Silvers to talk to Junior about it. Both had a young man's sense of invincibility, and Junior, as Gotti's son, no doubt felt untouchable too. Silvers went to his Lucchese benefactor, Tommy Stabile, and complained. Stabile went to Junior to hash it out, and Junior brazenly announced he was going to have Silvers robbed again. But he was willing to give Stabile a piece of the action. In return, Stabile just had to reassure Silvers that everything had been sorted out and that he wouldn't be robbed again. Stabile agreed. A few weeks later, Alight returned to Silver's apartment, again ostensibly for a drug deal. This time, when he got off the elevator, Silver's girlfriend was waiting for him. She frisked Alight before letting him into the apartment. As she moved her hands along his legs, he asked if she wanted to check his balls too. She replied that that wouldn't be necessary. As soon as Alight entered the apartment, he reached into his jockstrap and pulled out a gun. Again, Silver said, Come on, John. On this second robbery, Alight took $75,000 worth of cocaine and cash. 10% of which went to Stabile, Alight and Junior split the rest. Schemes like these proved there was no honor among thieves. 
In order to stay alive in such a treacherous world, one needed to make bold moves. For his part, Alight maintained a reputation for fearlessness and boldness. This was important, since an Albanian could never be a made man. The image of being a ruthless brute was his only way of keeping would-be thugs off his back. But Alight also enjoyed the violence, the hurt he caused. By now, he had more or less become addicted to the rush of it. The Gotties liked having an enforcer like Alight around, someone who wouldn't hesitate to get his hands dirty. For Alight, his continued work with the Gotties paid dividends. He was making hundreds of thousands by the late 1980s as a drug dealer and enforcer for Junior. Some of that money he spent on real estate. He bought two condos in Queens, two in Princeton, New Jersey, one in South Brunswick, and an apartment in Manhattan. But the crown jewel was a $600,000 piece of property in Voorhees Township in South Jersey. The 15-acre estate included three houses, one for his parents, one for his grandmother, and the third for him and the love of his life, Carol Defgard. On February 14, 1989, 26-year-old John A. Light and Carol Defgard were married in a grand ceremony. One might assume that Valentine's Day was chosen for its romantic sentiment, but it, in fact, was chosen as a sign of respect towards John Gotti Jr. Not only was Junior A. Light's best man, but the date was Junior's birthday. Before A. Light and Carol left for their honeymoon, A. Light hired a local contractor to install a hot tub, satellite dish, and electronic security system at his Voorhees estate. He paid the contractor $12,000 in cash to have everything set up by the time he returned. A nice little gift for his new bride. But during their Hawaiian honeymoon, Alight got a strange voicemail. One of his friends called to apologize for intruding on Alight and Carol just then. Confused, Alight called him back and asked what he meant. The friend explained that he had stopped by the Voorhees home and through the bedroom window, he accidentally saw them having sex. Alight and Carol, of course, were in Hawaii at the time. It was, in fact, the contractor who had been using Alight's bed. What's more, when Alight returned from his honeymoon, he found that none of the work had been done. That was enough for a beating. When the contractor showed up the next day, he was greeted by John A. Light and a lead pipe. The contractor was stripped down and beaten to a pulp. He suffered a broken jaw, arm, and ribs. When A. Light was done, he tossed the battered contractor into a lake on the property. When he tried to swim away, A. Light pulled out a pistol and took pot shots at him, keeping him in the freezing water. Once Alight got bored of that, he dragged the contractor out of the lake and tied him up in the garage. While Alight was at dinner, the contractor managed to untie himself and scamper out of a back window. As he ran for his life through the woods, he was finally picked up by the police on Route 73. Naturally, the contractor told them what had happened. 
Alight was charged with aggravated assault and kidnapping. And for the next year, he would be in and out of court fighting the charges. While Alight faced possible time in prison, he also butted heads with Tommy Karate Pitera of the Bonanno crime family. Tommy had killed Alight's friend Greg Reiter in a dispute over $20,000. Now rumor had it that Tommy wanted to get rid of Alight too. Tommy sent a group of armed men to Alight's estate, which Alight chased off with the help of an Uzi submachine gun. When word reached John Gotti Sr., he told Alight and Tommy to squash the beef. But Alight wasn't ready to let bygones be bygones. He promised Tommy Karate that he was going to put a bullet in the back of his head. Unfortunately for Alight, that promise would never get fulfilled. Not long after the sit-down with Gotti, Tommy was arrested for drug dealing and murder. A few years later, he was sentenced to life in prison. Perhaps that was for the best. If Alight had gone against Gotti's ruling and killed Tommy, a made man, he would have been putting his own life at risk. But Gotti's orders frustrated Alight, and throughout 1989 and 1990, he became increasingly disillusioned with the family's leadership. He bristled under the rules that were being forced upon him. Some of them were innocuous enough, such as not being allowed to wear sunglasses in front of Gotti Sr. Others were more hypocritical. Gotti publicly maintained the mob's ban on dealing drugs, even while he himself was making millions off the drug trade. What the rule really meant was, don't get caught. Other rules seemed indicative of the Gotti's preening, self-important fussiness. Everyone in the organization had to dress nicely, but no one could dress better than the boss. Once, Alight had to change his jacket because it was deemed too similar to the one Gotti was wearing. And no one was allowed to start eating until Gotti took his first bite. It was like the court of the Sun King. Failure to adhere to the rules, no matter how innocuous, could lead to execution. Louis de Bono, a soldier in the Gambino family, was once called to a meeting, but he made an excuse and didn't come. He was called to a second meeting and again declined to show up. So Gotti ordered his execution, and Junior was the one given the assignment. In October 1990, De Bono's body was discovered in the underground garage at the World Trade Center. As half reward for the hit and half wedding present, Junior was promoted to capo. The move reeked of nepotism. Many old-timers resented Gotti for promoting his own son, who was still in his 20s. De Bono was in his 60s when he was murdered, and he was still only at the rank of soldier. Those who bristled at Junior's rise kept it to themselves, for now. But this was exactly the kind of self-absorbed, tone-deaf move that ultimately led to his downfall. On December 11, 1990, John Gotti Sr. was arrested on charges of murder, racketeering, extortion, and jury tampering. 
Gotti had already beaten so many high-profile cases that the media dubbed him the Teflon Don. This wasn't due to Gotti being innocent. Far from it. Bribing and threatening jurors had played a crucial role in previous acquittals. So when he was arrested in 1990, Gotti was confident that this would end the same way as the others. Unfortunately, Gotti's underboss, Sammy the Bull Gravano, was also arrested as part of the indictment. Federal prosecutors said they had dozens of wiretapped conversations of Gotti, Gravano, and others proving they were guilty. Gotti was denied bail, so he set up a committee to rule the Gambino family in his stead. The committee, of course, included Junior. In November 1991, Sammy Gravano was allowed to listen to the supposed FBI tapes that incriminated him. As he listened, he was shocked to hear Gotti seemingly frame him for some of the murders in the indictment, murders he had nothing to do with. Embittered with his boss, Gravano agreed to cooperate with the feds, becoming the key witness against Gotti. Gravano took the witness stand where he confessed to 19 murders implicating Gotti in four of them. He revealed various secrets of the Gambino family and the rules imposed by Gotti, including that the boss expected birthday and Christmas presents of at least $300,000 from each of his capos. Gravano testified that Gotti had paid off jurors in his early trials and bribed a police officer. Most damning, he revealed Gotti's role as the architect of the Castellano murder. Thanks to the FBI tapes and Gravano's testimony, the Teflon Don was finally taken down. John Gotti was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. As the Gottis scrambled to maintain control, John A. Light could see the writing on the wall. With Senior locked away and Junior completely incompetent, staying with them could mean ending up inside a prison cell. Junior's witless management style created a power vacuum on the streets. The Gambino family shattered into warring factions jockeying for control. Pressure mounted for a Light to take a side. When the Gotti's enemies decided it was time to bump off Junior, they asked a Light to perform the hit. a Light agreed. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Next week, we'll explore the falling out between John A. Light and Gotti Jr. and A. Light's flight from the law that eventually led to a Brazilian prison. For more information on John A. Light amongst the many sources we used, we found Gotti's Rules, the story of John A. Light, Jr. Gotti, and the demise of the American Mafia by George Anastasia extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. 
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Kingpins was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Murden. <laughs> <laughs>